Foreign correspondents over more than a century have pounded out their stories on teletypes, on typewriters, on MacBooks. They've traveled the globe, parachuting in or digging in deep for years, even decades, to better understand a country and a culture and what all that's happening there means to their home audience. American correspondents and news organizations have been doing that in China for much of the past century, writing the first draft of history and telling the stories that, ideally, help everyone better understand one of the most complex and consequential places on Earth. This episode is all about that. I'm Mary Kay Magstad, and this is the China Books Podcast, a companion of the China Books Review co-published by The Wire China and Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations, where I'm deputy director. And this topic is close to my heart. I was a Beijing-based China correspondent for 15 years, first for NPR in the mid to late 90s, then for the U.S. public radio program The World. In fact, I was just coming into China for NPR when my guest on this episode was wrapping up his long stint there. I'm Mike Chinoy. I am currently a non-resident senior fellow at the University of Southern California's U.S.-China Institute. I was a foreign correspondent for CNN for 24 years, serving uh, in London and then as the network's first Beijing bureau chief and then a senior Asia correspondent and the author of five books, the most recent of which is Assignment China and Oral History of American Journalists in the People's Republic. Assignment China isn't just a book. It's a 15-year-long project that Mike undertook with the University of Southern California's U.S.-China Institute to interview more than 100 China correspondents, largely Americans from U.S. media, from over the decades. From this, Mike created a dozen hour-long documentaries that show the arc of who covered China over time, bringing in what sensibilities, covering what stories, with what impacts on the U.S.-China relationship and on Americans' general understanding of China. Well, I think it's fair to say this was a labor of love. I mean, my whole professional life has been largely, although not exclusively, but largely focused on trying to make sense of China and trying to report on China. So I have a deep personal interest in how that's done. Uh, and I also feel very strongly as somebody who worked as a foreign correspondent for so many years that the vast majority of consumers of, of news don't really have any sense of what goes into the coverage itself. What do you do when you are the Associated Press correspondent in Nanjing and the Red Army comes through the city gates in 1949? What do you do in the middle of the Cultural Revolution when you're sitting in Hong Kong, you can't get to China? What was it like on the Nixon press plane? What was it like to open the first New York Times Bureau after normalization? What was it like to be the photographer who took the picture of the man in front of the tank in Tiananmen Square and so on? Assignment China starts in the 1940s when American journalists based in China were covering the Chinese communist insurgents' fight to seize power from the Guomindang government. Seymour Topping of the Associated Press and Annalie Jacoby, who was then a Time magazine photographer, recalled in interviews with Mike that many correspondents saw the communists as reformists and that Americans back home weren't getting why the communist anti-corruption message was winning them so much popular support. There was a great deal of you know, admiration among the correspondents for the communists. Anybody that was 
well-informed in Nanking at the time realized that the communist victory was inevitable. They were going to win. And they did. Leaving most American and other foreign correspondents to have to find ways to cover China from the outside, like John Roderick of the Associated Press. There in Hong Kong was a kind of curious breed of reporter called the China Watchers. Our job was to report on China from outside of China, in this case, Hong Kong. Without correspondence on the ground, China became opaque to many Americans for a couple of decades through the Great Leap Forward, the Great Famine that killed tens of millions of Chinese, and much of the Cultural Revolution. But then... The announcement I shall now read is being issued simultaneously in Peking and in the United States. President Richard Nixon announced in July 1971 that he would visit China the following February and would bring journalists. NBC's Barbara Walters recalls in Assignment China how she felt. I knew nothing about China. Nobody had any idea what it really looked like. It really was like going on the moon. What are we going to see? We had no idea what to expect. And one stands there and sees the, the wall going to the peak of this mountain. And I think that you would have to conclude that this is a great wall and that it had to be built by a great people. I think one of the results of our trip, we hope, may be that uh, the walls that are erected, uh, whether they are physical walls like this or whether they are other walls of ideology or philosophy, uh, will not divide peoples in the world. Nixon called it the week to change the world. And it was, it, you know, it was, a, it was a big event. And this is what's important. It changed our view of China, but it also changed China's view of the United States. The impact of television on an American audience was extraordinary. China has suddenly come alive, and uh, all the rest is commentary. That was, in order, President Nixon, Stanley Carno of The Washington Post, NBC's Barbara Walters, and Bernard Kalb of CBS. After President Nixon's visit, China started to open up to U.S. news organizations being based in Beijing. One of the first correspondents to set up a bureau was Newsweek's Melinda Liu. We definitely felt like pioneers, um, particularly those who came with, with kids and family, you know, to be living in, in this Chinese hotel that was, I mean, it was a kind of hotel where, like, the room boys would literally, it, it didn't matter, they would just come into your room to start cleaning, whether your door was locked, whether you were taking a bath, or whether you were changing your clothes. They would just, you know, come in there. I mean, you know, my, my room was infested by bats. Graham Earnshaw was then a young reporter with the Reuters news agency. We were highly constrained, um, all of the journalists, the American journalists too, and so there was enormous uh, uh, frustration. We were all sort of trapped in these compounds in Beijing. Getting out and about was still possible. It was just easier for some than for others. I mean, I'm an, I'm an American-born Chinese. I look Chinese, so for me it was much simpler, but, but I still had to like put on a big old the great coat with the, you know, with a furry collar and a big hat and shoes. You know, your shoes always gave you away as a foreigner. So you had to wear Chinese shoes and slip out so that people thought you might be a local. Because otherwise people would follow you, find out who you talked to, find out what you said. Correspondents would sometimes gather for a little music and a few laughs. Graham Earnshaw, the young Reuters reporter, now himself an author and book publisher, was good at providing both. 
Oh, my old man's a carter. He wears a carter's hat. He has a big black limo with curtains in the back. And when I am a carter, I'll be the same way too. And as for serve the people, I've got better things to do. It all do. got easier for a while in the 1980s, recalls Daniel Sutherland, who was in China then for the Washington Post. I think 88 was the most open year that I ever you know, was able to observe while I was there, which is really exciting because did stories on art and music and things changing and people talking about sex uh, more than they ever were able to before. Uh, people trying out jobs, experiments going on, and some opening up in the media. There were even salons on college campuses where students talked about political reform. And then came the 1989 Tiananmen protests. They started out being against corruption, but morphed into a call for greater openness. Protests in the heart of Beijing, with the old imperial palace to the north, Mao Zedong's mausoleum to the south, the National Museum of China to the east, and the Great Hall of the People to the west. Dan Rather of CBS was there when Mikhail Gorbachev came to visit. The world's largest public square has now become the scene of the biggest demonstration in the history of communist China. Mike Chinoy himself reported on the protests live from Tiananmen Square for CNN for weeks. The scene at Tiananmen showed the depth of public discontent here now over inflation, corruption, and the lack of political freedom. Until the Chinese government pulled the plug on the live broadcasts, declared martial law, and, on the night of June 3rd spilling into June 4th, brought in the troops that killed hundreds of protesters and bystanders and cleared the square. The aftermath of the Tiananmen crackdown was bleak, says Dorinda Elliott, who was then in Beijing with Newsweek. I mean, it was just like, this was a different country. Nobody would talk to you. Everybody was terrified. Um, it was just the most shocking and depressing thing, you know, I've ever seen in my life. Some correspondents left, disheartened to have seen the hope and energy of the late 80s curdle into repression. But then, in the early 90s, Deng Xiaoping pushed for greater economic reform and opening up, just without the political reform, and many Chinese chose to move forward however they could. The entrepreneurial energy of the 1990s laid the groundwork of the boom that was to reshape the global economy. Jim McGregor was then in China for the Wall Street Journal. Every time you'd go, uh, you'd go out to an economic zone or meet a mayor or even a governor or party secretary who were all pretty accessible in those days, you would sit down and they'd all tell you the same things. And then they'd say, okay, now um, you're from the Wall Street Journal. We need foreign investment. How do we get more foreign investment? How can you help us? Let us show you what we have everywhere. That's about when I came in to open NPR's bureau in China in 1996. I remember going into the foreign ministry, being invited to sit in a big reception room. I was given my press card and a book of regulations, which even then said foreign correspondents were supposed to ask permission from the appropriate authorities before interviewing almost anyone or traveling anywhere, though correspondents living in China were already starting to find ways around those regulations. The mid-level foreign ministry officials were friendly and polite, and one surprised me by saying, we don't expect everything you write to be positive. We just hope it will be fair. I thought of that encounter more than once during my years reporting throughout China. It was a reminder to expect the unexpected. What seemed impossible could end up being remarkably easy. What seemed like it should be easy could hit a confounding snag. Regulations were vaguely worded and unevenly enforced. 
I could report on a controversial issue in one place with no problem, while another journalist reporting on it in another place got detained. Even under the past decade of tightened surveillance and expulsions of correspondents under Xi Jinping, several of the correspondents who remained in China still managed to report in Xinjiang on detentions of hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs, and others reported on other sensitive subjects. That said, the government did kick out at least 18 American correspondents in early 2020 from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post in retaliation for then-President Trump making some 60 Chinese correspondents for state-run media leave the United States. Also in China, it became harder to get visas for new correspondents. But even then, 39 American correspondents were still on the ground by the count of the Foreign Correspondents Club of China, which has a total of some 160 correspondent members. They share, in common with correspondents who have reported in China over time, a desire to tell stories that matter and a drive to find ways around obstacles to tell those stories. Back to Mike Chinoy. And I think, as anybody who's been in the news business knows, the process profoundly influences the final outcome. I felt very strongly that it would be a really good thing for people to get a sense of who the folks were who had covered China, what were they like, how did they get there, and what did they do? What was it like? And I hope people who are interested in journalism and in China and in trying to get a sense of what it's really like will come away with a much deeper appreciation of what goes into what you watch and read and listen to every day. So it's said that journalism is the first draft of history. How much do you find that that's literally true regarding China? Well, the notion that it is the first rough draft of history, I think, is true in the sense that it's the journalists who are out there essentially on the front line witnessing and reporting events in as close to real time as possible. In China, it's been complicated by the fact that there were many, many years when Western journalists, American journalists in particular, weren't able to go to the People's Republic. So you had this whole sort of secondhand technique for reporting the so-called China watchers who sat in places like Hong Kong, reading the tea leaves from a distance and trying to figure out what was going on. So that limited the sense of being an eyewitness on the ground. After the Nixon trip in 1972, and then after the U.S. and China established diplomatic relations, uh, it became increasingly possible for journalists to go to China and to open up bureaus. Uh, I opened the first CNN bureau, for example. And there was a period from the early mid-80s on until a few years ago when the general trend in China was towards the country becoming more accessible. The number of foreign correspondents increased quite dramatically, where they could go, what they could do, which was severely constrained in the very early days when uh, American news organizations were allowed to open bureaus, changed. It became much easier to travel. You didn't have to get written permission from a foreign affairs office 10 days in advance to go anywhere. But in the last few years, as Xi Jinping has consolidated his power, made himself effectively emperor for life, and as Sino-American relations have deteriorated, we've seen expulsions of large numbers of journalists for American news organizations. Uh, journalists not only for American, but for many Western news organizations are having great difficulty getting visas. 
working conditions on the ground in China are increasingly difficult, not only official hostility, but a public that has been essentially brainwashed through the official press to see journalists as hostile, uh, suspicious spy type figures are themselves becoming uh, less cooperative, which is a problem on many levels in terms of understanding what's going on and conveying that to the people who consume news. Let's talk about that a little more. Um, what impact do you think it has on the understanding that Americans in particular have about China and that policymakers have about China? The lack of access by so many American news organizations is having an enormous impact uh, on many levels. It means that it's increasingly difficult for journalists to travel around the country and kind of just get a sense of the feel of the place, what's on people's minds, what's going on in small towns, in, in villages, in areas uh, away from Beijing. And so for the small number of uh, journalists who are on the ground and the ever increasing number of journalists who are sitting in places like Taipei, where I live, or in Seoul, or in Hong Kong, or in Washington, you're looking at everything from a distance. And one of the consequences is that increasingly the, the focus of the coverage is on what one can sort of get a handle on from those vantage points. That means Sino-American tensions, it means security issues, it means China's interactions with the rest of the world, all of which are hugely important. But we're missing the uh, kind of coverage that gives you a sense of what China and the 1.3 billion human beings who live there, what it's like as a living, breathing society. And it also means that a sense of the humanity of ordinary Chinese people, and most ordinary Chinese people don't get up every day thinking about, you know, retaking Taiwan or America blocking China's rise or Sino-Indian tensions. They think about what most normal people, they think about their family, their job, their daily life. And we just don't have a sense of that. And I would also argue that that is an own goal from the Chinese government's point of view, because Beijing complains all the time about the nature of the foreign news coverage. But if you don't let foreign journalists get out and see the country, that's what you're going to get. It's not the only own goal. I think you can make a convincing case that a great deal of what we've seen under Xi Jinping has been one own goal after another domestically and internationally and blocking the limiting the foreign press coverage certainly is part of that. There has been this tendency over time, as you lay out in Assignment China, um, and as we both experienced on the ground as correspondents in China, of the government trying to shape the message, and that that often goes horribly wrong in terms of the outcome they'd like to have happen, and then what actually gets reported. What examples come to mind for you? One of the themes in Assignment China is this constant tension between American and other foreign reporters trying to sort of dig beneath the surface and beyond the propaganda and the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to prevent them from doing that. So we all had our struggles with the YBON, the foreign affairs offices in different cities, not letting us go to certain places or making it difficult or even on petty things. I remember going 
asking to see an automobile factory in Northeast China. And we went and they said, here's the factory. I said, where are the workers? They said, it's their day off. And I said, it's not very useful to us as a TV team if we can't film the workers. And they said, but you didn't say that you wanted to film the workers. You only said you wanted to film the factory. So here's the factory. But when you look back on it, I think that the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, the period when we were both there, with the benefit of hindsight, is almost a kind of golden period in terms of covering China, because for all the aggravations, for all the roadblocks, for all the frustrations, there were ways to get around it. Uh, you could do a head fake and leave your minders sitting in the hotel and run off and meet somebody or the the guides would go home at five o'clock and you could meet people in the evening. On my trip to Tibet in 1988, we had very tight controls from eight in the morning till five. And then the guide went off and my camera crew and I rented bicycles and went all over Lhasa and found dissidents and monks and so on. That's not really possible anymore, partly because of the use of uh, intrusive, sophisticated surveillance technology. They can follow everywhere you go. They can listen to almost everything that you say. They can monitor almost everybody you interact with. And so the techniques that were adopted, sometimes cloak and dagger sort of techniques, to get the story and evade the monitoring and the surveillance is much, much more difficult. And that makes one oddly sentimental for a period that one didn't feel so sentimental about when you were going through at the time. Yeah. Although, I mean, even back in the mid nineties, when I was first reporting in China, you know, some of the local foreign office officials, the Waiban officials would actually be incredibly helpful. Like there mm-hmm. was one who, um, who had been sent down to the countryside, wasn't allowed to come back. This was during the cultural revolution. And, you know, kind of had a, well, what are they going to do to me? Send me out here. You know, what do you want to know? Like, where can I take you? Oh, you want to see state-owned enterprises that are failing? Sure, let's go. And at the same time, even as, uh, you know, we're talking about more sophisticated surveillance systems now, in Assignment China, you talk about a journalist in the, I believe it was in the 80s, who uh, had befriended a, a relative of a Chinese-American he knew. They got together uh, a few times just to socialize. And that young man was brought in by the public security, played recordings of his calls to this journalist and shown photos of him walking through parks and department stores with this journalist. I remember stories of people saying that they were, you know, someone was played back a conversation that happened at their dining room table they made the most that they could with the surveillance capabilities they had even decades ago. There's no question. Uh, I mean, there was always a kind of running joke that if you really needed something fixed in your apartment, you would talk into the lamp. And, you know, hopefully they, the people listening to the wiretap would hear it and they'd come fix your leaky pipe or whatever. Yeah, the surveillance was omnipresent. And how aggressively it was used to constrain what journalists could do really depended on the political climate. Kathy Chen of the Wall Street Journal talks in Assignment China about doing this fascinating trip in the early mid-90s when uh, millions of poor Chinese were coming from the rural areas in the West to work in the factories along the East Coast in the special economic zones that kind of powered the boom. 
And she got permission to ride on a bus from Sichuan with a half dozen girls who were taking their first bus ride. Uh, and they ended up, I think, in Dungguan in Guangdong province, where they all worked in a Mattel factory. And it was the foreign affairs office in Sichuan that arranged for her to do that and didn't send somebody, she's Chinese American, spoke Chinese, didn't send somebody to follow her. And so she got this wonderful human interest story that humanized this phenomenon instead of millions of faceless Chinese. It was a handful of teenage girls that we got to know. And then Kathy was able, because she's ethnically Chinese, able to sneak into the Mattel factory and talk to them there and see what their life was like. You know, a successor to her, uh, it's worth noting, was Leslie Chang, also from the Wall Street Journal, who was able to do an extraordinary amount of reporting following young women who were going to work in factories in southern China and who had these, you know, hopes and aspirations for how this was going to transform their lives. And it showed a complex picture of of what life was like for them. And of course, this went into her book, Factory Girls. And I point to that as well as to her husband, Peter Hessler's book, Rivertown, as examples of journalism that actually is not just a first draft of history, but it's sort of an enduring history of a very particular moment in China. Right. I, I agree. And uh, Peter, I spoke with at length for Simon China, and it's, you know, he really kind of digs into the human fabric of Chinese society, partly because of his own experiences in the Peace Corps as a Peace Corps volunteer, and partly because he was working for the New Yorker, which didn't require him to cover breaking news. So he was able to get a degree of nuance and depth and texture that those of us yeah, you know, I was working for a 24-hour news network chasing every headline. So we have a, a mosaic of different kinds of journalists who cover China. You know, you've got print, audio, video. Um, you've got journalists who work on very tight deadlines, like the Financial Wire reporters. There are the reporters who really need to focus on covering elite politics. Uh, there are others like how you describe Peter Hessler, who who focused on sort of the texture of society and longer term trends. That was something I tried to focus on when I was in China, as, as well as the other more deadline oriented reporting. Uh, the journalists you interviewed for Assignment China, you know, they sort of covered the waterfront uh, in terms of building this bigger picture of China with everyone contributing something. I mean, to give credit where it's due, there are still journalists in China who are actually doing good reporting on China, foreign journalists. How do you feel about the picture we're getting at the moment? You're absolutely right. There's no question that the relatively small number of journalists for the American and other foreign media are doing heroic work under very challenging circumstances. And people are getting out, they're traveling, they're constantly testing the limits China's a big country. It's got 1.3 billion people. They're not all brainwashed automatons and robots uh, regurgitating Xi Jinping thought 24 hours a day. Ian Johnson, who was who worked for the New York Times, was one of the people expelled during the wave of expulsions in the early days of COVID, got permission to go back over the summer. And he did a fascinating piece in foreign affairs, I think, where he found all sorts of folks who clearly were not thrilled with the direction the country is going and are in their own kind of quiet way within the limits that won't get them locked up or in really big trouble, 
still trying to do things and say things and explore things, that exists. But between the limited numbers and the difficulties of doing it and the demands of covering day-to-day breaking news in a situation where there's not a day that goes by that there isn't some volley back and forth between the Chinese and the Americans or the Chinese and the any number of other countries with whom they are at loggerheads or speculation now about what's going on in elite politics with the foreign minister disappearing and the defense minister disappearing and the commanders of the country's rocket force, uh, two of them um, disappearing. It means that to be able to sort of go off and spend 10 days in a village in Hubei and come back and write a really interesting piece about what's going on is extremely hard to do. So without taking anything away from the incredible efforts of the people still on the ground, it's a much more difficult challenge than I would say than at any point since foreign American news bureaus were were allowed to set up shop after normalization. So with that in mind, uh, what qualities do you personally think are most important for a China correspondent to have? now, but also what have they been over time? Well, a lot of them are the same as for any journalist. You have to have a, a endless curiosity, uh, a deep interest in, and some degree, I would say, an abiding affection for the place because the China beat will consume you. It's not something you can sort of turn off. Um, if you have some prior understanding of the history, the politics, the culture, and the language, that's very important. You need, you know, the, the same quality of any journalist to be able to go on no sleep and a lot of caffeine and put up with a lot of stress. I think now you have to have an increasingly tough constitution because of the amount of things that are going to be aimed at you by the powers that be not i'm not talking about being beaten up but the frequency with which you'll you'll get called in denounced threatened warned that your visa will be revoked so it's very it's very challenging but the flip side is there is no more important story than china i mean it's the fate of 1.3 billion people how china interacts with the rest of the world is going to shape the rest of the world in in so many ways that it can't be ignored just because it's difficult. But I think one thing that concerns me is given the difficulties in access, you're seeing, you know, for example, fewer people studying Chinese in American universities, you're seeing fewer people who can envision a career in China. And so people who go into the China field, some of whom might end up in journalism, are coming at it much more from a sort of national security China threat perspective, because that's what's the big theme now, whereas in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, it was the China boom. There's nothing in principle wrong with that. It's a valid issue and a real concern. But again, it's the lens through which China is viewed. If it's increasingly that, then it's another contributing factor towards uh, the diminution of the emphasis on sort of China as a living, breathing society full of real human beings, as opposed to just American adversaries. And I think that's something that is unfortunate for the for news consumers, and it's unfortunate for China as well. Yeah. I mean, you, you just touched on a number of things that were very interesting, but one of them is how the story of China is framed. 
and it has been framed in different ways over time by different generations of journalists. Actually, in the 90s, when I was first there, there was still something of a heavy focus on human rights, human rights and trade and the tension there. And then it started being more about the China boom and about China becoming uh, increasingly part of the world. And I think there is a tendency, not just in China correspondence, but just in the world in general, of seeing things as being linear. Like, you know, it's going in this direction, it's going to keep going in this direction. And China has a way of continuing to surprise people with like unexpected shifts where if you look back, you can see that there were points of data that weren't necessarily being connected in a way that showed what was coming, but that it was there. And I'm just wondering, as we're looking at this moment, it feels like a fairly tense, difficult time, but then it kind of felt that way before your first trip to China. Well, I mean, if you go if you go back further, the Chinese were our friends and allies in World War II. Then it was the communists, the the red menace, the blue ants coming over the hills in the Korean War. Uh, then they were Cold War allies against the Soviets. Then they were going capitalist. Then they were the butchers of Beijing after Tiananmen Square. Then they were sort of going capitalist 2.0 turbocharged with the implication that they're going to be like us. Of course, that didn't happen. They kind of went their own way. Then it's China as emerging superpower. And now with Xi Jinping having reversed a lot of the policies that were critical to the success of the boom and having undone a lot of the attempts at sort of modifying the way the political system operated to prevent the emergence of, you know, another Mao-like all-powerful figure, you have China as, you know, the red menace again. So it's an odd way that it's almost come full circle. And I think it's more complicated than that. Even at the worst times, it's not 100% black. There are multiple shades of gray in there. But I think, you know, at the moment, the prevailing dynamic, which is fueled largely by the behavior of the Chinese government to which the world is reacting is has been very negative. And, and I think the Chinese would, of course, say that this is an American attempt to block China's rise. And I think today that's not an inaccurate view of what the Biden administration has been trying to do. But the reality is that it was the U.S. that pushed for China to join the WTO, that it was American investment that helped get the, the China boom going. So the notion that the U.S. Is, has a long track record trying to block China's rise, I think, is, is nonsense. It's China's own external behavior and internal behavior that's triggered this response. But I think the upshot is we're in a very dark period. And a lot of people that I talk to always ask, you know, about the political position of a news organization. What was CNN? I, I work for almost 25 years at CNN. What was CNN's position on this? What's the New York Times position? The reality is that apart from an editorial page in a newspaper, there is no position. And the field reporter out in the field has a great deal of leeway, to, as, as you know, having done it for a long time as well. You get up every morning, you look for something that's interesting that tells you something about the place that you're at that the people who are reading or watching or listening would find intriguing. 
Uh, but that being said, the climate, the broader climate in which editorial decisions are made, judgments about what kind of stories editors want, how the headlines are written, are shaped by the prevailing political climate. And the prevailing political climate now is U.S.-China tensions and could it get worse? So certainly it was my experience that as a correspondent on the ground, almost all of the story ideas came from me. Probably the same for you, I think, for most correspondents, that a, a good editor will recognize you're there. <laughs> you're living right. and breathing this stuff. What what are you seeing that's changing? What are you seeing that matters? You interviewed more than 100 American journalists or journalists working for American media. Over time, the sorts of understandings and conceptions or preconceptions, misconceptions um, that journalists brought into their experience in China would perhaps shape the sorts of stories they saw or the things they saw on the ground. I'm wondering, as you talk to journalists about their experiences in China, how much were you hearing, like once I was there, <laughs> checking my assumptions against reality, that you know I recognized there was a different kind of thing going on here, or it was more complicated or it's it's an interesting question. I mean, certainly in the fifties and sixties, the Cold War was the sort of dominant framework that everybody operated in. And you couldn't get into China, uh, except for extremely rare occasions. And China itself was going through all of this craziness, like the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. And so on. I think in the 70s, especially in the, in the very early 80s, when the doors really first opened, there was this kind of Wow, we can see what it's really like as opposed to being at a distance. So I think there was, there was a period of kind of discovery. This is what they want. This is what their aspirations are and so on. Once that wore off, I think people, first of all, kind of came back to earth in the sense that once you realize it, yes, the Chinese were all human like us, but they were in a political system that was not at all like us, repression and so on. That in the early 90s, as the country itself, while still politically repressive, was beginning to shift to getting the economy going again, especially after Deng Xiaoping's famous Southern Tour in 1992, which kick-started the boom. Then I think there was an element of, if you're sitting outside China, you're just looking at endless replays of the image of the man in front of the tank from Tiananmen Square crackdown. You get on the ground and you discover there's like business and there's investment and there's growth and people are pursuing personal opportunity. And there were like Chinese punk rock groups and there were all of these things going on. And my guess is if you could get beyond the official restrictions today, you might have another one of those moments where it's not all Chinese gearing up to go to war with the United States over Taiwan or to take over Asia or whatever. It's just Chinese doing their thing in a million different ways. Chinese are still doing their thing in a million different ways. It's not the easiest time to cover it all right now. Correspondents on the ground are finding ways to do it. So as journalists working in this environment, we're always sort of finding a way in. We were talking about this earlier. There's always a cracked window to sneak in, right? There's always a way or a way to do a version of what you originally set out to do. We can put it that way. That's John Ruich of NPR, who I talked to in August 2023 for an Asia Society Northern California Zoom event. Uh, the internet has been indispensable. These social, social media that's clearly monitored, um, 
is where we find a lot of the people we talk to. You know, if there's a bank run somewhere, that's the first place we turn to look for folks who are unhappy about the way the bank um, dealt with their money. Uh, the whole uh, Urumqi fire protest spread that way. The A4 revolution, revolution with air quotes around it, spread that way. So, and that's how I think a lot of journalists, including us, found folks to talk to. John's been reporting in China for almost 20 years, starting out with Reuters. He switched to NPR in the middle of COVID and had to wait two and a half years for his new press credentials and visa. Since getting back to China in early 2022, he's done a wide range of stories, political, economic, social, in rural areas and in cities, including stories about dissidents and disappeared political figures. He knows that almost half of correspondents who responded to the most recent Foreign Correspondents Club of China survey said they'd faced government interference. And he certainly faced it himself in the past. But none of that has happened to me, I have to say, uh, in the past year that I've been reporting in China. Maybe it's just dumb luck, uh, except for lining up interviews with folks who then backed out of them, right? Because they maybe came under pressure or realized that they were talking to foreign media and probably shouldn't. Counterintuitively, John says. Uh, I think the geopolitical and the sort of political situation, the tightening, has in some ways made particularly young people almost more interested in talking to us. These are people that were born with more freedoms and, and rights and a brighter future in a way than, than they have right now. And um, I've never felt in the mere 20-odd years that I've been doing China, I've never felt the place so pessimistic as it is now. Melinda Liu was on that same Asia Society Northern California panel. Having set up Newsweek's bureau in the early 80s, she came back to China in the late 90s and has been based there ever since. She agrees with John about there being a current era of pessimism, both as an overhang from COVID lockdowns and because life in China has changed. Economic growth is slowing and government control and surveillance is increasing. Big Brother is a lot bigger now. In the 80s and even in the 90s, even at the turn of the 2000s, there was an expectation that technology would would set us free, break down borders, the internet. And we thought that that was game-changing. Our miscalculation was to think that technology had some kind of value system embedded in it, that it was an automatic agent for good values. And that was not the case. Technology is a tool. And anyone can use that tool. You can use it for good, but you can also use it for evil. And so yeah. what's, what's happened now is almost a bureaucratization of the government response to journalists and also to its own people. You know, the fact that it's omnipresent, everything you do, everywhere you go, everyone you see, everything you say, you know, even just the idea that it's all on record somewhere, I think is quite inhibiting. Still, despite the anti-U.S. rhetoric in official Chinese media, Despite the very real sense of patriotism or nationalism that many Chinese feel, Melinda says she has found in her recent travels to several provinces around China that... At the grassroots level, there is a deep reservoir of goodwill towards Americans. You know, if you were Joe Blow in America, you might not know that, or it might be counterintuitive, but it is there and it is strong and it is still happening. John says he sees one of the goals of the reporting he's doing as helping Americans understand a complex picture of a country and its people. One of the reasons I switched to NPR is that there's the flow of news. There are the big trends we all have to cover, the economics, the visits, the human rights, all these types of things. Uh, But I got into journalism. I grew up in 
Midwest. I got into journalism and, and studied China because I thought China was fascinating and basically didn't know anything about it. And I think most Americans don't really know much about it. And so insofar as we can be bridges to tell stories about people in China, right? And have somebody sitting in St. Louis, Missouri or Akron, Ohio or San Francisco or wherever who doesn't know anything about China think, huh, that's interesting. I can relate to that person. I think that's an important role. And it has been over much of the time American journalists have covered China. It's the animating spirit, not just in many stories, but also in books by American journalists like Leslie Chong's Factory Girls, Peter Hessler's Rivertown, Oracle Bones, and Country Driving, Philip Pan's Out of Mao's Shadow, and Ian Johnson's Wild Grass, The Souls of China, and Sparks, China's Underground Historians and Their Battle for the Future. That's just the beginning of a long list of books by correspondents that have brought China to life for readers. Thanks to Mike Chinoy for being a guest on this episode and for bringing to life what it's like to be a correspondent in China through his book and his 15-year-long project, Assignment China. You can find all 12 documentaries on the website of the University of Southern California's U.S. China Institute. Just Google USC and Assignment China and it will come up. All of the audio in this episode of China Correspondents of Earlier Eras is excerpted from those. If you like the China Books podcast, please rate it on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find it. And subscribe there or wherever you get your podcasts. Or check it out, complete with transcript and other extras, at chinabooksreview.com slash category slash podcast. If you've got comments, queries, ideas for new episodes, I'd love to hear them. Drop me a line at mmagstad at asiasociety.org. That's M-M-A-G-I-S like Shanghai, T-A-D at asiasociety.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time, every first Tuesday of the month. And meanwhile, happy reading. <laughs>